before I came up here, and I looked at Bethany, I was like, wouldn't it be wild if my notes weren't in this Bible when I came up here? And she's like, you checked 15 times before you left the house. So, would have been wild, but also unlikely. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through, verses 10 through 19. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that we can anticipate your coming this season. And Lord, this Advent season, we ask that you would prepare us to live as though we are truly waiting with certainty that you will come again. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to start off by sharing a story. And it's actually two stories. And they begin similarly, with very similar people, it seems, at the beginning. But they end quite differently from one another. They're intentionally held in contrast, and they're both going to be familiar, I think, to many of you. The first story is of a rich man, sometimes referred to as a rich ruler. And like many in his time, he was compelled by the teachings of Jesus. And perhaps he'd been following Jesus around, listening to him teach for some time, or uh, maybe he had just heard him for the first time and decided, I've got to ask this question. But either way, and regardless of what this guy intends to result of this conversation, he does ask a question. He asks Jesus, what must I do to enter into heaven? He wants to know what it takes to have eternal life. And the author tells us that Jesus looks on this man and he loves him. And then he responds by telling him, in summary, to keep the law. The ruler states that he's kept all these things, right? I've done all this stuff since I was a child. And Jesus responds, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The man becomes sad, and we assume he leaves, and Luke, it's not clear whether or not he does. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We'll let the story lie for now and look at another story. Uh, It's another story that's familiar to us. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And 
Luke intentionally places this story just soon after this interaction with the rich ruler or the rich man for the same reason that we're doing that today, because we see a contrast, two people with similar backgrounds, wealth, access, resources, but two different directions. However, unlike the rich ruler, who seems to be somebody who was on the in crowd, a law-keeping Jew, we see Zacchaeus as somebody who's a little bit on the outside. He would have been seen as somebody who had sold out to the Roman Empire. He was getting most of his wealth dishonestly. And yet, in the story, we're given insight to the guy that would be known as the wee little man in that all-too-famous kids song. And as a man who, compelled by the teaching of Jesus, gives half of his goods to the poor and restores his embezzlements fourfold. And Jesus ends this story with the comment, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Two people on two different trajectories. And we see this contrast show in our passage today as well. But first, some context. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage him as Timothy faced the obstacle of false teachers in his day who were greedy and proud and seemed to be all over Ephesus. Concern for the welfare of the church in Ephesus and also for Timothy in particular, Paul finishes this first letter to Timothy by contrasting two different trajectories. The, the way that leads to sorrow or many pangs, as we see in verse 10, that is the love of money, like the rich ruler, and the way that leads to life, in laying a strong foundation for the return of Christ. And we see that from the story of Zacchaeus. And while Paul directly talks about the rich, right, at the conclusion of this letter, I think we need to be humble enough to realize that God's directed to this passage applies to all of us. He's targeting all of our hearts here. That no matter how much or how little we have, we ought to hold it with open palms, not allowing it to master us, but understanding that God is master over us, as well as with our resources. Put in another way, Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy and now us to live as though we are certain that Christ will come and to become unshackled from the chains of those things which are passing away for the sake of that which has become new. We're encouraged to live as though we are certain Christ will come to become unshackled from the chains of those things which are passing away for the sake of that which has become new. It's important for us to realize this, that the idea that we reorient our relationship to our possessions and resources towards Christ's return is not somehow a work that's going to make us right with God. We understand instead that it's Christ's faithfulness. And yet living as though we are certain Christ will come, and becoming unshackled from the chains of those things which are passing away for the sake of that, which has become new, comes from a place of love and faith toward our long-expected King Jesus and his love for us. And to that end, as America recovers from the national holiday of Thanksgiving, the church turns her attention to Advent. I actually saw something funny uh, this morning as I was drinking my morning coffee. This guy named Ed Stetzer posted, Today is the first Sunday of Advent, or as Baptists like to call it, another Sunday. A time, which sometimes, you know, I thought it was funny. Maybe it's not. I grew up as a Baptist, so every Sunday was basically the same. A time where, it says at the time where we not only remember that we were at one point in time in history waiting for the Savior's first coming, but now we are anticipating his return. And because we are anticipating Christ's return this Advent season as well, waiting and watching, this letter from Timothy, from Paul to Timothy is timely for each of us. So let's go ahead and start with verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, which can be translated as sorrows. This phrase, the love of money, refers to the word avarice, which means that my goal, my pursuit, is to acquire wealth. It's just one word in the Greek, and I think its use is convicting here. It's saying, if I see wealth as my goal in life, wealth is my idol. Paul is compelled that he and Timothy and us in the church today must be focused on the race set before us. The good fight, as we'll see later in this passage. Just as we cannot serve two masters, we can't run two races. But I think before we continue to examine this, we should make something clear. that Paul is not condemning people who are wealthy as evil. Nor is he saying that being gainfully employed or having wealth is in itself a bad thing. We have examples of this being put to good use in Scripture. We already talked about Zacchaeus, but we also know of people like Priscilla and Aquila who seem to be wealthy and use their wealth for the furtherance of the kingdom by helping to build the church selflessly, even welcoming many Christians into their home. But just as wealth is not inherently bad, it is not inherently good either. It is not a virtue It's a burden. And it is a burden because it is seductive. A a siren call, especially in a culture like our American culture, which which totes wealth as a virtuous and noble pursuit. But Paul knows better. And he warns that the pursuit of wealth, avarice, has, to use the literal translation in verse 10, seduced many away from the faith. And like all the promises of this world, following after the love of money will pierce us with many sorrows. It is hard for a rich person to enter heaven. Verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, which also translates as justice, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul is directly addressing Timothy here, right? That Timothy is that O man of God. He's a young minister, and Paul is concerned about his own journey in the faith. And yet what Paul is admonishing to Timothy is something that is preserved for all of us to follow the example of Jesus even in a world that creates pressure to do something different. To be righteous, to pursue godliness, to have a life of faith and anticipation for Jesus' return, to love, to be steadfast, or to have endurance and to be gentle. Paul encourages Timothy to follow the way of Christ, to pursue that which is good instead of following the way of the false teachers he seemingly has become surrounded by. It flies in the face of the sensibilities of that present age and even ours where we live in a culture that wants us to get ahead. But instead of a it's not show friends, it's show business mentality, Paul will go on to encourage a practical way of pursuing these good things of righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in the final verses today. But for now, let's continue to verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As we realized earlier, we cannot run two races any more than we can serve two masters. Paul likes to frequently use this image of fierce athletic competition. This passage is no different. He's presenting the idea of being completely focused on one thing, uh, much like an athlete would be for their sport. And For any of you who have ever competed, this illustration Paul gives is very clear. I remember, for example, being a high school wrestler and the fierce effort required to not only 
prepare for the tournament, but also to make weight, right? It wasn't just about getting good at your technique or having endurance, right? Having a, a strong cardiovascular system. It was about making the weight class. So your coach didn't call you fat and so that you could actually compete that weekend. Now, teenagers are hungry to begin with, right? But when you cut weight, all those nice, yummy things like cookies and brownies and ice cream and all, all the stuff that you look forward to, it's, it's even more tempting, right? Because all you got to do is walk into the stadium where you're going to compete, and there's all those vending machines, and there's all those little, uh, I guess, cafes that they had set up to sell all the goodies, and you can't have any of it until after you weigh in. It required every ounce of focus and determination to walk past it all, don't look at it, and step on the scale first. Without a singular focus, accountability and self-control, it'd be easy to sacrifice all that hard work on the altar of instant gratification. It's right there, and it really only costs like a dollar and fifty cents. But Paul's warning Timothy, don't do that. Stay focused. Stay bought out for the kingdom of God. Take hold of eternal life. This idea of, of claiming the true prize, which is yours in Christ as a result of his faithfulness. This is our eternal gift, and yet like the junk food that could distract me from the prospect of making weight and being able to compete in my tournament, so too the burden of material wealth can distract us from the gift of faith if we give into a love of it. Looking at verses 13 and 14 now. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who keeps his testimony before Pontius Pilate, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives kind of a vague charge here uh, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say it's vague because really... We're not sure what Paul is saying here. Like what command is he referring to? Some um, commentators will say this is all the charges of being a faithful minister that Paul has kind of sprinkled throughout 1 Timothy. Others will say, well, he's talking about the, the new commandment Jesus gave, right? That you love one another. And while it could be those things or a combination of them both, I think that we can at least, by looking at this passage, say that it does include Paul's commandment in his letter to flee from the love of wealth and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. I think that's at least part of it here. It's with this idea of with reckless abandonment, without blending the pursuits of the world, right? Without compromising on these pursuits of the world of wealth and sex and power and blending with the pursuit of faith, we simply fight the good fight. We hold fast to the way of King Jesus. It's Paul's charge to Timothy, and I think it's also the Holy Spirit's charge for us through these verses. So we look at verses 15 and 16. I want to reread verse 14 just to keep with the context there. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul, as he often does, he turns his attention from this commandment he is leaving to almost this 
feeling of a doxology. He's beautifully exalting Jesus who will in the fullness of time reveal or display, as Paul says, his return. And this is big Advent energy, right? That's what we're thinking about and talking about over these next several weeks as we look towards Christmas, that the Messiah came in secret, right? The king of the world's identity known to only a few, right? To his parents, the shepherds, some foreign nobles, and King Herod. But that the Messiah will return in glorious pronouncement. Paul's calling to mind this much-anticipated return to align his message to Timothy as a posture of hopeful waiting, as we'll soon see in the verses ahead. We're not anticipating something out of blind faith. We're awaiting the return of a true king who has come before. And it is because of this confidence that Paul can say with certainty that we ought to flee from the love of material wealth and chase after the life of faith in this king. And Paul finishes this doxology, if you will, with this curious statement, whom no one has ever seen. The word seen can also mean perceive, which is important because we need to be able to answer the question, what does it mean that no one has ever seen the king if the king is the son of God who came incarnate, dwelt among humanity, and was known personally by several? Paul definitely means that it's not that no one has ever seen Christ, right? That's the miracle of the incarnation, that people had seen Christ, seen God incarnate. And yet no one has seen him in the fullness of his kingdom. No one has ever perceived that light unapproachable, which is often called the beatific vision. That's just a term that you can hold on to, so at your next um, holiday party with your family, you could break out some knowledge and impress them in your religious debates at the table. But, but what it refers to comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 12, or at least it, it speaks to this idea that for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It is the promise Paul is looking forward to as he writes these words that, yes, I have not seen Christ fully, but someday I will see him and know him as he knows me. It's this eternal promise of perfect union with God that we look forward to. And it makes Paul's instructions in these final three verses something we ought, by the grace of God, to be eager to do. As we look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul turns his attention now on what he calls the present age, which is held in contrast to this future age that Paul's been talking about, what he's been anticipating over these last few verses. In this verse, he subtly warns, because I have to fit this in here, right? More money, more problems. This is true on several levels, perhaps more, most alarmingly presented when Jesus says this, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your reward. Luke 6, 24. We know in Matthew's rendition of these teachings, he says these are the poor and the rich in spirit. And yet, when we look at Luke and we also read the rest of scriptures, it has to mean both in that when we put our hope in our riches, when I'm hedging my bets on the things I have, we receive just a consolation prize because we forsake the true prize, which is life with Christ. We forsake it for temporary gratification. But before we look at verses 18 and 19, let's look back at the last bit of verse 17, where Paul writes Timothy to teach the rich, don't set your hope 
in your resources, but in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Another helpful reminder by Paul, right, that it is not having resources and access and wealth that's the bad thing, but avarice, the love of money, is. And not only that, but we see that even though we ought not to pursue money, we still serve a God who provides us with everything to enjoy. And I don't think there's a need to over-spiritualize a statement like that. That God's not the fun police. Take your family out to a nice dinner. You know, go on that memorable vacation. Build those memories with your family. And enjoy that day at an amusement park when you watch your kids eat too much cotton candy. And soak in every ride on those roller coasters. Build up an inheritance for, for your future generations. Those, if you can, right? Those things are okay. If enjoyment and delight were not acceptable emotions and experiences, I can't imagine it'd be something we'd be told to do. It's just, it's not about the emotion. It's about what it's oriented towards. We need to be cautious not to allow enjoyment and occasional indulgence to become the golden handcuffs of a life always in pursuit of more, more, more. Instead, we ought to find our primary delight in serving for this kingdom of God that we're awaiting and anticipating as we read in verses 18 and 19. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here we have this practical instruction Paul leaves for how one with resources can follow the way of Jesus by using their wealth for the glory of God. As we look at Paul's encouragement for sacrificial use of whatever resources we have, we should remember a couple things about this, though. God doesn't promise material wealth to anyone. While money is used in some of Jesus' parables, wealth is not the point. And I say that just as we're looking back at these illustrations of Jesus' teachings, including the parable of the talents. I think it's important to note these things because it seems like a, prop, a popular idea in um, our time and our age that somehow wealth is a promise or somehow, if I am generous, right, if I do these things that Scripture is telling me to do, that I'm going to just receive more money, right, and keep receiving more money. But that's not a promise we can find in an honest reading of Scripture. Another interesting thing about this is as we're reading these verses, Paul's approaching these rich Christians, right, as really almost like an exception to the rule, right? And while it would be pretty uncommon in the first century, it's not uncommon to encounter wealthy Christians in the United States. In fact, according to Pew Research, 90% of adult Christians in the United States earn $100,000 or more each year. And this is the average survey across denominations, which range from the Episcopal Church all the way to the Southern Baptist Convention. And actually, the wealth statistics of Christians mirror almost directly, identically, those of the rest of the American population. So you're more, more as likely to run into um, a Christian with resources as you are somebody who is not a Christian with resources in America. So we can be certain that Christians are, on average, more affluent than one would expect to find in the ancient Near East where this faith was born. But here we are, right? Here we are in a day where no matter how it happened, we're a people with access generally, to resources that are unprecedented in history. You know, Solomon, in all his splendor, didn't have air conditioning. Even those of us who may be struggling financially can read this and rightfully ask, what is God calling me to do with what I do have? Even if, 
like the poor widow in the gospel accounts, we find ourselves with seemingly meager opportunities for generosity. We can still ask that question. And what do we do with this reality? Paul tells Timothy to instruct these, the rich, right, to be rich in good works. The good in good works in the original language is a word that means beautiful. Do beautiful works with your resources. Be generous, readily to distribute, and proactively generous. One commentator named John Gill says it like this, they are ready to distribute unasked, and when they are asked, do not turn away. Generosity, this sacrificial willingness to share what we do have in a radical way is the unavoidable call that Paul gives. We see John Chrysostom, an ancient Christian, agree that if you cannot find Christ in the beggar at the door, you will not find him in the chalice or at the Lord's Supper. What do we accomplish by this, though? In a culture that tells us, spend our money for ourselves, save it for our later years, what do we gain by being sacrificial with our resources? by being free from the slavery of the love of money. Well, Paul tells us we store up treasure as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. The image Paul is drawing for us here is the idea of building a foundation on stone. It's foundation on stone. It's hedging our bets, going, going all in on our investment in the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of man, with all its riches and frivolousness, is passing away. It's the house built on the sand. There's something else I think we should note here as well. In the spirit of Advent, I want us to pay attention to verse 19 again. This idea of storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word future here means, more literally, something sure to happen. What Paul is convicting us to do with what we have, to give of our resources for others in a way that defies sensibilities of a culture that celebrates self-preservation, it only makes sense if we believe that Christ is true. Paul says elsewhere, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are most of all to be pitied. See, if we do not believe that Jesus is coming, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if Christ has been raised and he will come again, let us store up treasure as a good foundation for when he does. It does not mean that the more you give, you'll somehow have more access in the kingdom, right? What we're talking about here is saying, I am burning down my idols. I am, get, I am unshackling myself from the chains of those things which are holding me to the kingdom of man, and I'm keeping my eyes fixed on the kingdom of God. I'm going to align myself with those who may not have as much as I have, who may not have access and resources, but they are looking for the same king as I am. And I'm saying that is where my identity is. That's where my hope is. Not in whatever small things I do have. So let us give in love and so live in confidence in the promised return of Jesus. While we pass through the season of Advent, we actually exist in an Advent. It's a time for waiting and watching time for anticipation, and even certainty. Certainty because we wait, but with hope. In the words of Tertullian, hope is patience with the lamp lit. And it's because of this hope that we can be certain. 
is something that we see that ought to allow us not to walk away from this passage being discouraged, but being encouraged. Because do we believe in Christ's true return? Then we can see whatever resources we have, whatever we come together with, whatever I've been blessed with, I can see it as not my own, but as God's for the sake of my neighbor, for the sake of those hurting around me. We can do these beautiful works Paul charges the rich to do with confidence that this is not being done for nothing. It is being done because this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. To richly bless because we have been richly blessed by our loving God. Paul's letter to Timothy teaches us that we are called to live as though we are certain Christ will come and to give freely of those things which are passing away for the sake of that which has become new. It seems confusing in the perspective of our present culture that money is used as this instrument to leverage freedom, right? We talk about financial freedom a lot um, in our culture. That is freedom to buy more things, to go more places, and to work less. And these things in and of themselves are not bad. I would love to work less for more money, frankly, right? That sounds fantastic. But the rhetorical question that the Holy Spirit is asking is this. What future are we living for? What future are we living for? A commitment to my money, a view of wealth as a virtuous pursuit instead of a dangerous commodity if I turn my love toward it, it doesn't make me free at all. Instead, I become a prisoner to my avarice. My lust for more holds me hostage and robs me of the opportunity to see the kingdom of God unveiled around me in an almost imaginative, sanctifying ways. I get to, in some way, participate in it now, even while I wait for Christ to come again. It is in turning what we have over to Jesus that we become truly free, free to give generously and enjoy deeply as we wait. And it's just as Paul promised in our passage today that Christ will return to reign forever. And as we say in our liturgy for the Lord's Supper, Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we can place in you, for the love that you have for us. Thank you that you are um, with us in some way even while we wait. Lord, as we continue our time together in worship, would you be glorified and given all the praise and turn our hearts to you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.